Good morning, BBC. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Pastor Travis. I'm the teaching pastor here, and I uh, just wanted to welcome you all. Um, and also, just a, a couple more announcements. Uh, we want to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we wanted to welcome little Wyatt is here today. It's his first Sunday here. Yeah. So, Wyatt, good mo- welcome to church. Welcome to church. Now be quiet. Um, wanted to welcome him, and we rejoice with that. But we also sorrow a little bit because this is Karen Robbins, the Robbins, last Sunday here. Uh, they're going to be moving. John has been transferred. So uh, we're going to miss you a lot. We just wanted to let you know that. Um, please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Judges. We've been in our series entitled Samson, the Flawed Fighter. And I, I, I'm curious if anyone here has ever heard of the book by a woman named Lori Hall called An Affair of the Mind. I, I'm not looking for hands, but uh, this book is a very interesting book. I encountered Lori Hall when I was um, a student in college. She had come to my college campus, and she was talking about pornography. And um, I remember it because it was the first time I'd ever been in, in an event uh, with a lot of people in their 20s at the time to speak so bluntly about pornography. And I was so touched by what she had to say that I went back and I bought her book. It's called An Affair of the Mind. And it wasn't even her real name. She was using a pseudonym to protect uh, her family. And in this story, when you read it, it's striking. It cuts to the heart very quickly. It's about a woman, and it starts off with her sitting in her car in the parking lot of a clinic as she just got tested for AIDS. And she's being tested because her husband, she'd found out this deep, dark secret that her husband had had, um, that he had been visiting prostitutes. Uh, and it had come to light. Matter of fact, all of this stuff about his personal life had come to light. And then she begins to reflect back on her life with her husband over the last 20 years. And it starts off just wonderfully, almost storybook. He had grown up as a missionary kid in Africa um, and uh, was a dynamic leader in the church, uh, was a pillar, uh, was a very intelligent, college-educated man, got a job in the White House as part of the security detail. People in the community really looked at him as this giant pillar of, of strength, of fortitude, and he was respected. Um, and she started noticing, though, in their marriage, things started to happen. Slowly but surely, he would be late when he would promise to be home for dinner. Um, he would come in and he would be distracted. Um, and she noticed things starting to even more shift, that he would just drift off in the middle of conversation. And she was beginning to wonder, what was wrong? What was going on in our marriage? What, what was it? And it came to light, that, uh, and it just all came out one day, that he had not just been addicted to pornography, but this pornography had gone on and had spiraled, this downward spiral of disobedience. It started when he was 18. He'd been exposed to what, at the time, this was back so many years ago, was called softcore porn. And he saw it at uh, someone's house, as many different young men do. And then it saw it at the barber shop where it was exposed. And, and then it kept on. And he got more and more curious and got more and more engaged in it until the point where it literally took over his life. And it put his children in danger. Uh, to the point where he would go on a business trip and he took his young daughter, I think she was five at the time, on the trip with him. And he parked on a seamy-sided town and he said, Daddy needs to go get a toothbrush. And he left her in the car in the middle of this environment to go see a prostitute. And it talks about how it overtook his life. Now, today's message isn't about pornography per se. It's about sin. We're talking about sexual sin and lust. But all sin can be applied to the principles that we're going to be looking at today as we look in the life of Samson. Now, Samson is known as the, we call him the flawed fighter, in that he's in the hall of fame of faith. This is a man that is mentioned among the greats of the Old Testament. He's one of the judges of Israel, one of 12 men and women in this transitional period of Israel, after they had come into the promised land and before the monarchy is established, where they would rule and exercise God's judgment on people. And we understand that this man is supernaturally endowed with strength. He has been consecrated to God from birth set aside in, um, under the vow of what is called a Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6. His head was never to be, his hair, excuse me, was never to be cut. He was never to touch a dead body, and he could never have anything that had come from a vine. So he couldn't drink wine, he couldn't even eat grapes. Um, and this was, these were some of the outward signs of this inward, supposed to be an inward set apart, that he was to be set apart and consecrated to God. And as we have seen, as we've looked through Samson's life these past few weeks, there are certain words that are described, to, used to describe him, that he went down. 
Now, he was Jewish, and he would go down to this region of the Philistines. And he was interacting with these unbelievers in a very negative way. And what was happening is uh, he, his, these words, he would go down, are not just indicating something that was going on geographically, but something that was going on spiritually. That we see this individual who is going down. He is playing and placating to the, the world around him. He is becoming more and more worldly, indulging in more and more sin, becoming more and more tolerant of what's going on around him. And one of the phrases we see in the book of Judges time and time again are the words, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that that's becoming what Samson does. And even the words that are used of him, he saw it was right in his own eyes. He becomes his own judge and jury. He leaves the commands of God's, God behind to pursue his own path. And though he was a hall of famer for faith, his life is cut short because he played fast and loose with God's word. He, he decided to disregard God's word. Now, God used him despite of himself. And God uh, will do that with us. Even when we are disobedient, God's still going to use us to accomplish his purpose. We won't experience the benefit and the blessing of it if we were going in obedience. But even in our disobedience, God redeems for his own purposes. And as we look on Samson, we see, just like with Lori Hall saw with her husband, the downward spiral of disobedience that it ended up taking him to places that he didn't want to go. And I think many of us in this room can resonate with Samson. While we may not have lived his life exactly, we know what it's like to begin to compromise and start to sin once, and then it becomes easier to do it again, and then again, and then again, and then we end up in a place we never expected to be. And we ask ourselves, what happened? How did we get there? But God knows, and he speaks to us through his word to our fallen condition, and using Samson as a warning and a challenge for each one of us that we might look at his life and avoid his mistakes as well as seek to emulate his successes. So today what we're going to do is we're going to see how this downward spiral of disobedience got a foothold in his life as well as examine ourselves because we, like Samson, are living in a time where every man is doing right in his own eyes. Are we not? Every school, business, you can't tell me what to do. You can't say that's wrong. That's being intolerant. You're a bigot. And yet, every person becomes their own judge and jury. And how are we to live and not compromise and give in to this world around us that is so seductive, that seems to be everywhere and become commonplace? And all of our friends and all of our family are doing it. See, that's what we see going on in the book of Judges. That it wasn't just affecting Samson, but all the people around him. And we see at the beginning of Judges, these people who had just entered into the promised land, had been great, standing in faith before God. And we see this downward spiral going through the entire book of Judges until we get to the end of it and see how bad it really got. And Samson is probably the biggest example of seeing how far the people of God could really go. So I would invite you to turn with me today as we jump into this very important passage and look in this very, uh, seeing what God has for us today. But before we go further, let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Father, we enter into your presence hungry for what you have, uh, what you what you want to say to us. Lord, we, we sense compromise all around us. We know how quickly and susceptible each one of us are to, to sin. Lord, we sense it in our own lives. We, we get so weary fighting the things that we see going on around us. We see it in our peers. We see it in our family. We see it in our workplace. We see it blasted in front of us at the supermarket or on the internet or on television. Lord, please give us the eyes to see the true reality of your word and what it means to walk close with you. Lord, help us to be mindful of the sin that, is, that clings so closely to us and help us to forsake it and live lives that are pleasing in your sight. And Lord, may we not give in, but may we do what is glorifying to you and what gives us fullness of joy. Show us clearly the lies of the devil and the lies of the world that we might forsake them and embrace what you have for us. We pray your blessing on our message time now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd invite you to follow along with me as we go through this passage, because we're going to be walking through it. Um, so you need to hopefully be able to see a Bible so you can get a full glimpse of what God's wanting to say to us today. Well, the first thing that we need to do as we look within this is understanding um, how Samson played fast and loose with God's commands. 
He played fast and loose with God's command. I'm going to give you the first point right off. Playing fast and loose with God's command. Now, we see Samson starting off in chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Verse 1, lays it right out. Samson is engaging in sexual immorality. And we see that this is his Achilles heel. Uh, for those, if you are familiar with the story, we all, I think many of us, if we've ever been through high school literature, are familiar with the story of Achilles, as told by Homer, um, that he is the great warrior that he is indestructible on battle, that his uh, mother was, half, was go- uh, like a goddess, a lower goddess, and his father was human, and that his mother had taken him and grabbed him by the heel when he was a baby, by the Achilles, and dipped him into the river Styx. This is how the myth goes. And that everything that was covered him uh, under the river was dipped is indestructible in battle. Nothing could hurt him except one little area that she was touching, which was his Achilles heel. And we know through the story that's how he's defeated. Now, each one of us has, in essence, an Achilles heel. Sins that we are susceptible to more than others. Now, all of us can do any sin at any given time, depending on the circumstances we're in. But some of us have different sins that are more normal or natural to us. And Samson's, obviously, as we see within this, is lust and sex. I mean, he is a guy that is drawn to it. And he goes in and he visits this prostitute. Now, we go back and look in chapter 15, and this is nothing new as it appears on the scene. In chapter 15, he'd already married a woman that the Scripture had condemned him marrying. And that was someone of a completely different group outside of Israel. And he married a Philistine, something that the book of Deuteronomy had condemned. Um, But we see God using that to bring judgment on the Philistines, yet the act itself was still wrong, even though God used it in his disobedience. So he goes to this Philistine woman, we see him going to a prostitute, and then we see him going in, in just a few verses later to Delilah, who is also from the Valley of Sorek. She's another Philistine woman. So we see that he is playing fast and loose. He's saying to God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm not going to follow your word. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what's right in my eyes. Now, how many of us have done that? How many of us have looked at God's word and said, you know what, that's okay. I know that's what it says, but I'm going to do this anyway. I think many of us have done this. We become the judge and the jury. And Samson's doing that, and he's playing fast and loose with God's commands. Now, here's how we play fast and loose. Because you might say to me, how do we play fast and loose? Well, we play fast and loose when we indulge our sinful desires. When we indulge our sinful desires, then we are definitely playing fast and loose with God's commands. You know, it's interesting. I was talking about pornography. People are calling it now the new narcotic of our age, powerful more than heroin or cocaine. As a matter of fact, as I was reading just this, just this morning, I was looking at some of the stats that were very, very sobering. They were talking about how bad pornography had become. And if I remember this correctly, we have 1.8 or 1.9 million cocaine users in the United States. 2 million heroin users compared to 40 million regular users of online pornography. And I think that number's low. It's come the new narcotic. Matter of fact, they have shown that it has more addictive traits than cocaine or heroin. That it creates this uh, chemical dependency in the mind. That it starts transforming then our very, very thoughts. And we see that it doesn't, sometimes it's not just pornography, it's the things that get us there. And in our society today, probably the most prevalent arena that this is in is in our entertainment choices. Now, John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, or was pastor, he's uh, president of the ministry Desiring God, he wrote an article this past week that uh, actually it was just in a, a question and answer. He does this video kind of vidcast where people ask him questions. And one peop- one, two people wrote in, a young man and a r- young woman, asked about watching this popular HBO TV show called Game of Thrones. Now, Game of Thrones, I, I've not seen it, but I'm familiar at least with it. It has, it's HBO's greatest and most singular watch show in the history of HBO, getting 18 million viewers per episode. And it's known for its graphic, uh, graphic rape, uh, graphic nudity, incest, I mean murder. It's, 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 it's an awful show. And these young people were writing and going, is it okay for a Christian to watch this? And he has a very interesting response um, he says this, the closer I get to death, 
and meeting Jesus personally face to face and giving an account for my life and for the careless words that I have spoken in Matthew 12, 36, we're all going to give an account for every careless word we've spoken. So not just what, I mean, think about that. Just words you've spoken and now think about all the, the, the thoughts that you have and what you watch. You're going to have to give an account for that. He goes, the more sure I am of my resolve never intentionally to look at a television show or a movie or a website or a magazine where I know I will see photos or films of nudity. Never. That is my resolve. And the closer I get to death, the better I feel about that and the more committed I become. Frankly, I want to invite all Christians to join me in this pursuit of greater purity of heart and mind. In our day, when entertainment media is virtually the lingua franca, uh, franca or the common language of the world, this is an invitation to be an alien. And I believe with all my heart that what the world needs is radically bold, sacrificially loving, God-besotted freaks and aliens. In other words, I am inviting you to say no to the world for the sake of the world. The world does not need more cool, hip, culturally savvy, irrelevant copies of itself. That is a hoax that has duped thousands of young Christians. They think they have to be hip, cool, savvy, culturally aware, watching everything in order to not be freakish. And that is undoing them mortally and undoing their witness. And then he goes on and gives 12 reasons why, before you watch it, this is what you need to think through. And I've actually included that for you. I didn't want to go through all of them today, but reading it, I was convicted in my own heart. Uh, he gives 12 reasons and why, and he basically, basically says to all of us, what are we watching? What is God, I mean, what are we putting before us? God says whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is trustworthy, think about such things. I'm not talking about being a morality police, but I'm saying, where's your heart? And how can you watch something like that and it not affect your heart? And how is that not crucifying the Son of God all over again? And at the end of the service, at, um, on your way out, I'm going to ask the ushers to pass that out if you want one. And it's, and it's good for not just TV shows like that, but for all of our shows. Because it's everywhere today. It's almost inescapable. You can't watch anything without some sin being triumphed. And I wonder when God comes back, what's he going to say to us? I mean, we need to make sure that we're not indulging our sinful natures and becoming voyeurs. We have to be able to forsake that. So, I'd like us to get back to the text. See, I want us to see how it affects his eyes. It's what we take in. In Judges 14, 3, and then verse 7, he says, Do it, for it is right in my eyes. And in Judges 16, 1, we say, He saw her, and he went to her. It was about his eyes. He saw what he wanted. It felt good, so he did it. He became his own authority and wouldn't listen to anyone else. Now, are you and are we our own authorities? Do we forget that we will all be judged, not according to our standards, but according to God's? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Turn with me if you have a pew Bible. It's on page 1003. If you're not that familiar with the Bible, this is in the New Testament, the latter part back of your Bible, book of Hebrews. It's about 13 chapters long. Um, and uh, the author of Hebrews is writing in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, through 13. I'll give you a moment to turn with it. I'd, I'd like everybody to turn there if you have a Bible. As the scripture says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, vi- the, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All of us, we will, every single person in this room, without exception, will be giving an account of himself to God. This is one of the most unpopular doctrines within churches today. We don't want to hear about God as judge, but God is judge. He is judge, and he will judge each one of us according to our deeds. And what we have done, first of all, by what we have done with Christ. Did we believe or did we not believe? And then we'll be re- rewarded according to what we did with the gifts that we've received in making his name known. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, just flip over, that's just a couple books over from that, page 1016, if you have your pew Bible. But 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 through 5. Peter is speaking, and he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Meaning, unbelievers are going to be surprised that you're not joining with them in sin. 
and they malign you. You're going to have people say all this bad stuff about you, but they will give an account to him who is judged to judge the living and the dead. Again, they're not important. What our peers say is not important. Not what the unbelievers say, because they're not the ones to whom we have to give an account for. We have to give an account before God in Him and in Him alone. So we must make sure that we are not indulging our sinful desires. Next, we know that we, uh, we can see here, uh, when we play fast and loose, is when we are seeking intimacy in the wrong people and in the wrong places. Seeking intimacy in the wrong people and in the wrong places. See, that's what Samson did. He was seeking it in the Philistines, which he shouldn't have done. He's seeking it in immoral women, which he shouldn't have done. And he, he's, he's going time and time again. He's seeking intimacy in the wrong people and in the wrong places. Now, let me say this. Relationships matter hugely. And I've had so many people that have come to me over the years because they have made dumb and stupid choices relationally. Whether it's them living together and they're like, well, it just happened. It didn't just happen. Something happened or this occurred or they ended up in sexual immorality. And I get it. I totally get it. And I get everyone around is struggling with it in some way. And we see it everywhere and more prevalent today than ever before. And I've even seen people come to me and they say, well, you know, we, financially it was better for us. I get There's no excuse that's going to make it right in the sight of God. And I don't mean that to be condemnatory. I'm trying to do it in a spirit of love to show you this is not what God's best is for you. That God has something better. When people say, well, you know, I want to test drive before I, I buy. Well, if that's the only car you're ever going to have, why does that matter? But not only that, I mean, you're playing with fire. And people say, well, I don't want to end up in divorce. So let me, okay, so you don't want to get up divorced, so you're going you're gonna to live together before you get married. And this can be for any sin, by the way. It can be for homosexuality, any adultery, any sexual immorality whatsoever. Dating, I mean, you can even date an unbeliever and keep it pure, and still, that's still sinful because you're with an unbeliever in that regard. But I, people say, well, I don't want to be divorced. Okay, so let's look at the logic of this for a moment. Say, we're going to live together so I don't get divorced. That's like saying, I don't want to be a drug addict, so I'm going to be an alcoholic. Both of them are still a state of sin. See what I'm saying? But that's what happens. We start to rationalize our sin. We all, we all do it. Every single one of us do this. Okay? And you might find yourself in this kind of situation right now, and it, there's a way out. And I understand you didn't get it overnight, and we'll help you get out of it. It's going to take time. But don't play fast and loose, and don't look for the wrong, um, seeking intimacy in the wrong people in the wrong places. That's what Samson did. And what happened to him? I mean, look at him at the end. He's a fool. He's a total fool because he was seeking intimacy in the wrong people and in the wrong places. I've had too many people come to me and they say, they give all excuses for why they're indulging and what they're indulging in. And I smile and I say, it, you're only hurting yourself. Don't try to convince me. And I look at it time and time again and I see them shipwrecked on the rocks and we come along and help them then. And I don't want to say, I told you so, but God's word does not change. It doesn't change. And I say that in a, in a, I really mean that in a spirit of love. Because I, I, just like I talk to my kids, don't do this. It's going to hurt you and those around you. Seek intimacy in the wrong people and in the wrong places. It's sin. We've got to make sure that we're not doing that. God may let you continue in that sin for a while, but he will not do so forever. As Paul said in Romans chapter 2. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. I only have a couple passages more. I think this is uh, two more for you to turn to. That's all for today. But Romans chapter 2, that's page 940 in your uh, pew Bible. Because I see a lot of Christians say, it's okay that I can indulge in this. It's fine. God's okay with that. No, he's not. You know how I know that he's not okay with it? Because he, he had his son crucified for you that you wouldn't stay in it any longer. Let's go to God's word and what God's word says about this. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, Paul, by the Spirit, writing to the church at Rome, says, Or do you presume, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, God's kindness now, is meant to lead you to repentance. Not that you would stay in your sin, but he would lead you to it. He loves you so much. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Storing it up. Wrath. Storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
he will render, render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So we can't continue in this. We can't presume upon it. Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, page 1022. It's my last passage I'll have you turn with me uh, today. But 1 John, near the latter part of your Bible, not the book of John, but 1 John. It's five chapters long, kind of small. You flip over it if you're not careful. And this is John writing. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Not to stay in it, to take it away. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Not that we're never going to sin. The point here is that we are abiding in him, we are walking in the Spirit, and when we're doing that, we're not sinning. It's impossible to sin when we are in walking in the Spirit. The hard part is, is that we are broken vessels that leak. And then we aren't walking in the Spirit anymore, and then we are more susceptible to sin. But he goes on. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children. He says, with great affection. You know that his heart is bleeding for them. He cares for them. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But it it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I love how John puts that in there at the end. Because why? Many of us would say, hey, I'm not doing that sin. I'm all good. He's also saying, you've got to love your brother. In other other words, don't be a self-righteous jerk. Because self-righteousness is equally bad, by the way. We all talk about the parable of the prodigal son, right? We know the story of the parable of the prodigal son. And we, a lot of times we see ourselves as the prodigal running home to the dad after we have been continuing in sin. But the reality is, is the longer you're in Christ, for many of us, we become like the older brother who's self-righteous. And that's where it ends with him getting ready. Does he go into the room to celebrate with his brother who is repentant? So don't be a self-righteous jerk either. Don't continue living in sin, but don't keep pointing the finger at that person saying you're in sin all the time in a a jerky way. I mean, you can do it in love, but don't do it as a jerk. Now, when we're going down this downward spiral of disobedience, God God has a way of getting our attention. Can anybody testify to that? God can get your attention in ways that you're like, okay, I need to pay attention right now. See, we, when we're playing fast and loose with his commands, we have a tendency to ignore the warning signs. That's the next way that we know that we're, we're in sin. The warning signs are there, and we're not getting it. We're not getting it. Now, the Philistines had approached Delilah with a financial offer. If she would find out the source of his strength, they would give her 1,100 pieces of silver. And that might mean, may not mean a lot to us, but that would be a total of 5,500 shekels. Okay, That may not mean much to us either. But these 5,500 5, shekels would equal 550 times the average annual wage. Now, assuming that, let's say that there was, you were making $25,000 as an average annual wage, the Philistine offer would be in the neighborhood of $15 million. Now that takes on new, <laughs> that takes on a whole new urgency right now. And you're, all, you're going, wow, I could, I could buy myself a house. I could, wait, I could go to the church. Um... We think of all these different things that we can do now. $15 million to find out the secret of this Jew's, Jewish guy's strength. Would you do it? Is that sacrificing your integrity? Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, let's see. Like many of us would. See, he, but she agrees to do it, so she presses him to give up the secret of his strength. And between verses 7 and 17, she presses him, and three times he gives her bogus information as to the secret of his strength. And what blows my mind is that he wakes up three times to that very thing being done to him that he just told her. By the way, this is the secret of my strength. And he, he goes for a nap, wakes up, and that's just what happened to him. Now, 
I, I look at Samson and I go, are you an idiot? I mean, how do you miss this? And I think that many of us miss it. I mean, I see myself in this too. Hopefully we all see ourselves. What is, what is going on that causes us to miss God warning us? And three times it happens to him, and yet he doesn't get it. He's missing the warning signs. What is God bringing into your life right now as a warning sign to you? What are you experiencing? What is God saying, I want you to pay attention. This is a warning. Doot, 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 pay attention. I think many of us, we don't, we don't hear it anymore. It's like when I used to live in, on the north side of Chicago, we had car alarms every night. And me being from a small town, the first time I went out, I'm like, oh, somebody's breaking into a car. And you realize it's the wind and somebody just walking by and hitting a car. So months later, it became like music in the night. And I didn't hear it any longer. These alarms going off. And I think many of us are like that. We're deaf to it. We don't hear them. And we ignore the warning signs. Now, another way that we know we are playing fast and loose with God's command is when we think we are immune to consequences. We think we are immune to consequences. When I look at Samson, I see a couple of instances where he thought he was immune to consequences. The first, after he visits the prostitute in Judges 16.1, we look at verse 2. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and why he woke up at midnight, I don't know. Maybe he had awareness, someone told him, we're not, we're not sure. At midnight, he rose and took a hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all. Okay, these aren't little gates. These are massive gates. And he picks them up, puts them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, I did some research on this. That's 40 miles he walked. Going up 2,000 feet. Now, I ran a marathon, and I wasn't carrying anything except fat. And that was hard. I mean, I could barely move my feet. And this guy is walking with his stuff above his head. I mean, this is an amazing feat of strength. And he's, bad, he's like, I'm bad to the bone. I mean, you picture that with Samson. He's a guy that's like, I'm immune to it. Big deal. And so when he, every time that he wakes up after Delilah does something to him, he goes, I got this. What's going to happen to me? I'm the man. Now, we think that of ourselves at times, that we're immune. That happens to other people. You ever thought that of yourself? That happens to someone else and not me. But we're not immune to consequences. None of us are at all. Not only that, we, we have this tendency to think that we are invincible. Believe that we are invincible. Look at verse 20 of Judges 16. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. No one's going to touch me. I am Samson. I mean, sometimes I wonder if it would be one of those rustling things where they, Samson, he comes out of the tunnel. You know, I kind of picture a guy like The Rock. This big, huge, muscular guy, and he's invincible. No one can touch him. And we have a tendency to think that of ourselves. We get away with it once or twice. We, we think it's not, you know, and when it doesn't happen, we become more bold. And we think God doesn't see, God doesn't care, but God does. God does. And it's going to happen. And we have to understand that we can't trust in our own strength. We can't trust in the things around us. We have to trust in God himself. I love the, the, the psalmist who said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's not in the externals. And Samson was trusting in his strength. His strength. And he believed that he was invincible. Now, what happens if we continue in this downward spiral of disobedience? When we continue to play fast and loose with God's commands, what will happen to us? Well, we have to see that we're jeopardizing our future. That's number two that you need to write down. We're jeopardizing our very future by continuing to go down that path. Now, Samson gets turned over to, I mean, the, the Philistines. Actually, he's not gets turned over. That was in chapter 15. But he is continually giving himself over. And look at verse 1. He goes to Gaza. He sees a prostitute. But then the Gazites, the Gazites show up. The Gazites, excuse me, show up. And they're getting ready to take, take him out. He's jeopardizing his life, and he doesn't even know it. And then again, down to when he is with Delilah, 
she's prepared to turn him in, to turn him over, to snuff him out. He's jeopardizing his future, and he's not even aware of it. That's what happens when we continue going down this downward spiral of disobedience. We are jeopardizing first our protection, our protection. That we're not, we're not safe. We're, not, we're outside of the will of God. When I mean safe in the will of God, I don't, I don't mean that danger isn't going to happen or pain isn't going to occur. You will not suffer. I mean that you will experience peace in God's presence as you go through it. And in this, you're not. He's sacrificing his protection. Second, he's jeopardizing his power. His power. What gets taken away from him when he gets his hair shorn? His power. Now, was it the power in the hair? No. It was an understanding, outward consecration of God's presence, and that's no longer there. But re- the reality is, is that it's showing how far he had come, and God's, God wasn't with him any longer. That he had sacrificed himself, and he had sacrificed God's power in his life. And when we continue in sin, we sacrifice our power before God. Our testimony means nothing. Have you ever encountered someone like that? They come up to you, and they're very bold in their proclamation of Christ, and something is going off in you, going, something's not right. I had that happen one time to a man who came to me, and he was always wanting to teach everybody. And every time that he came up, I had this gnawing feeling that something wasn't right. And, I, and, I, and he, I think he figured this out because he looked at me, and he knew that I knew something wasn't right. And it turned out later that he was masking all of this sin. And he came back to me, and he's like, you know, I knew, I knew that you knew I was in sin. And that's why every time he'd say something, it was hollow to me. Because there was no power behind it. There was not the, the strength of an inner character that was holding it, that was rooting it. That it was bogus, that he was pretending, that he was putting on a face. We sacrifice our power when we continue to indulge in sin. We're jeopardizing our future. He also jeopardized, we also jeopardize, as he did, losing our position. Our position. Samson is taken prisoner. No longer would he be a judge in Israel. I knew of a man who had this happen in his own life, except this happened literally. He was at his job, he started to start looking at pornography, and he didn't think anybody would find out. He got caught, and he lost his job. He literally lost his position. And you lose your reputation. You lose so much of what others have understood of you. And it's blaspheming and bringing, bringing blaspheme, uh, others, especially Gentiles, those who are outside of the covenant community of God, to blaspheme God's name. Because they look at you and they think God's not real. Now, if we continue in this, it can also lead to unbelievable pain. The guy had his eyes gouged out. Think about that. That was one of the most horrific judgments that you'd see within the Bible. Matter of fact, the last king within Judah's history, uh, because he disobeyed and went against uh, king of Babylon, he he had his sons, they slaughtered his sons right before him, and then they took out his eyes. They wanted that to be the last image he sees. Now, I find interesting, very interesting here. What is it got Samson into trouble? Yes, obviously, it's sin rooted in the heart, but where is the term we see over and over again? In his eyes. In his eyes, right in my eyes. He saw her. And what does God take away from him? His eyes. God exercises his judgment in the area that brought him into sin. See, when we continue in sin, we're inviting unbelievable pain into our life. Pain. Pain of a, of a marriage, pain with our children, pain in our work, pain in the church life, pain all over the place. Unbelievable pain. And if we continue in it, it ends up, it makes us look pathetic. Pathetic. Look at, look at verse 21. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Here we have this great Samson. You know, great Samson, strong Samson. And he's doing the lowest job of the low. This is what those, I mean, he's in prison, and it's like he's making license plates. We see this guy making license plates. Here's the guy that was, you know, it's like the state of Illinois. Welcome to Illinois, where our governors make your license plates. <laughs> and a lot of our governors are ended up in prison. So you see individuals like Rod Blagojevich in prison. Here he was, had his name plastered all over our expressways, on TV all the time. And now, we see him in prison. It's humiliating. For Samson, it's even more so. Because this was a man who experienced and had the blessing of God on his life. And yet he rebelled and turned from God. 
Though God still used him, though he was still considered a man of faith, God did give him over to the consequences of his choices. It made him look pathetic. He was doing the lowest job of the low, grinding grain at the mill in prison. Now, many of us can relate to Samson. What do we do, though, if we've been down this road? What if we are suffering right now the devastating consequences of our choices? And I think many of us understand that all too well. Well, then here's what, here's what we do. Here's where the hope comes. And when this passage, by the way, ends with hope. Look at, look at verse 22. This is where the hope comes. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Even in the midst of this, there's hope. Even in the midst of destruction, God brings hope. Even in the midst of the ashes, there's beauty coming forth. Even the things that the locusts have seized, as we see in the book of Joel, God brings blessing in the midst of that. That God doesn't leave us where we are. That God is not a God of condemnation as much as he wants restoration. He wants restoration. He gives hope. He gives consolation. That this is the consequence that have happened to you, but I'm here for you. I'm here offering myself for you. I've given my son for you that you have, no longer have to be condemned, but you can be restored, that you can be saved. That he gave Christ, in, in Christ on the cross who is substituting himself for us that we could now be free of our sins and have restoration in the sight of God and have hope. So what do we do if we're going down this road? Well, first of all, it means facing our failures. Facing our failures. We can't escape them, but we must turn and deal with them. Now, the first thing we must do is this. Be turning from our sins and repentance. Turning from our sins and repentance. Now, there's a story about a, a man one day who was on his way to catch a train, get to work. He, he, had, uh, he had to get there on time, especially. It was an important meeting. He didn't want to be late for it. He had to cr- catch the 805 train. Now, it had rained the night before. And the man was rushing out the door. He opened up the back door, and there was his little son playing in the mud, something I too much understand. He was busy rubbing, his son was busy rubbing mud on his face, mud on his arms, and just having a good old time playing in the mud. Now, the father, intent on catching this 805 train, had a place to go. But because, uh, because of what happened, he was trying to get around him. He jumped over his son, said goodbye, and he rushed out of the house, and he slipped and fell in the mud next to his son. So, now the father is sitting in the mud, and the son is in the mud. But the father still has to catch the 805 train. The son gets to stay there. So, the father had a place to go. But because of where he needed to go, he did not stay in the mud and play in it. He had to catch the train. So, he jumped out of the mud, best as he could. He cleaned himself off and took off running because he had a train to catch. Now, he had to catch the 805, and he knew that on the 805, there was going to be a restroom where he could clean up the dirt that had accumulated during the time he was in the mud. Now, the, the story is, is indicative that there are two kinds of people in the world today. There are some who are playing in the mud, and they're not trying to go anywhere. And there are other people who are in the mud but don't want to be. Which one are you? Are you playing in the mud, or have you slipped in it? I mean, you might have slipped and fallen and, and been in it. But as you're even in the mud, it's dawned on you that you've got a train to catch, a place to go. You've got a God to know, a life to live, experiences to have, and you want all that God has for you. Maybe you've decided to, to leave the mud, to repent, to turn and catch the train, because on this train, God has got a restroom that will clean you up. He's got the blood of Jesus Christ that will transform you and take you to, to the destination of God's purpose in your life. God is a God of second chances. He's a God of U-turns. He's a God that gives us clean slates, and he's God that will offer to clean us up. Now, secondly, it involves us taking responsibility for our actions. We can't excuse, rationalize, or minimalize it. We have to take responsibility for it. Don't try to escape the consequences, but step up and face them. I was reading a little bit about President Truman, a very fascinating man. And I particularly enjoyed, uh, what I enjoyed about him was his way of taking responsibility for stuff. And on his desk, there was a sign that read, the buck stops here. We've all, I think, that are anyone who was born after, before 1980 knows this phrase. The buck stops here. And the understanding was, as I take responsibility, it ends here. I'm not going to pass it on to someone else. I'm not going to say it's someone else's fault or this is what happened to me. And, and we have things that happen to us. And that's unavoidable. We're all going to have things that happen to us, painful things that happen to us. The question is, is what do we do with it? 
I like how Max Lucado put it. Pain is inevitable. Misery is optional. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. So we have to take responsibility for it. I mean, even for those who have hurt us, we have to understand that even Christ himself became a victim like us. That we might be freed from that as well. He understands that. So it's not just what we've done, it's those things that we've had done to us as well. So we must take responsibility for our actions. And thirdly, it means trusting in God for restoration. As I said in verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again. While he was suffering the consequences for his sin, his hair began to grow. God was restoring him. You know, I I think, and I want to close with a story. I'm a sucker for Rocky movies. Every time I hear that music, I get pumped up. And in in the movie, uh, it's the fifth one. The fact that there's been that many of them makes me smile. But in the fifth one, Rocky Balboa is too old to fight. He's too old. And he received an eye injury in Rocky IV from Ivan Drago. And he's retired. But he up comes this young man named Tommy Gunn. Now, Tommy Gunn is an up-and-coming heavyweight and has always idolized Rocky Balboa. And he asked Rocky to train him and make him the kind of champ Rocky was before. Rocky agrees, thinking that this was a good way for him to stay in the game of boxing. Now, Rocky becomes the trainer for this young man. And the young man rises and becomes a contender for the heavyweight champion of the world through the training and discipleship of Rocky. Now, the problem comes because this young man gets too big for his britches. He thinks he's got something now. He's got the ladies, he's got money, and he's got prestige, but everybody keeps saying that he's not as good as Rocky. So he figures, I don't need the old man anymore. He doesn't want to be in Rocky's shadow. So in Rocky V, the whole movie comes down to the last 15 minutes. That's what every Rocky movie comes down to, is the last 15 minutes. Okay? Comes down to the last 15 minutes. And uh, he comes out, he comes at Rocky. He comes to Rocky's home, and he challenges him to a fight, and then punches his brother-in-law, which if you've ever watched the show, you want to punch his brother-in-law as well. Rocky's angry, so he comes out ready to fight. It's the rumble in the neighborhood, starts, all, it goes into the street, people begin showing up to watch the scene. Somebody, I don't know how they knew that Tommy was there and Rocky was there, so the news shows up, and, and these guys, wanting to see the champ, Tommy Gunn, fight in a street brawl with his mentor and teacher, the great Rocky Balboa. Now, cameras are everywhere watching this brawl in the streets between Rocky and his young protege because Tommy's really gone crazy. The problem is, is that Tommy's too young and he's too fast, too strong, and Rocky can't keep up with him. Try as he might, he just can't keep up. And at one point, Tommy Gunn reaches back and gives Rocky this right cross in his jaw that sends Rocky Balboa falling into the gutter. Now, he's there in the gutter, and people are all around him crying out and Tommy taunting him, and Rocky starts having all these flashbacks. He's beaten, he's broken, he's bruised, he's, he's replaying all the times that he'd fallen, all the times that he got hit by Mr. T and by Apollo, and, and he, when he got hit by Ivan uh, uh, Drago and Rocky IV, and he just can't get up. No matter how much he thinks about it, he can't get up. He sees his wife crying over him, and the, he thinks of the punches he's received, and he hears the crowd, but he can't get up. He sees himself losing and falling. One of his old trainers, though, is crying out in despair. Tommy continues in his mind. This is what he hears. Rocky can, Tommy continues to taunt him to fight, but he can't. He's stunned, defeated. But then he hears his first trainer, Mickey, who died, say to him, Get up, you bum, because Mickey loves you. That's when you hear the Rocky theme song. So he gets up, shakes his head. Tommy's walking away with his honorage, thinking he has won. And then Rocky says, yo, Tommy, I didn't hear no bell. One more round. So he finds power he did not have, and he finds ability he does not have because he remembers somebody who had died and then who had, in essence, come back to life in his mind to let him know he was loved. He defeats Tommy, and the crowd once again chants Rocky. See, no matter what your status is, no matter how many times the devil has knocked you down, 2,000 years ago, somebody loved you and died for you and rose up from the dead. And he says to us today, get up, you bum, because Jesus loves you. So you may be suffering the consequences right now, and we've all suffered them, either because of our sin or because of our self-righteousness. We've all suffered them. But our God is the one who gives hope. He loves to restore those who have been in sin. He loves to save and transform. By his death, we have been set free. 
Have you been set free? Or are you still a slave to it, wallowing in your sin? You need to catch that train. God's train of salvation. Run to Christ in repentance and receive his forgiveness. He was crucified for all of us so that sin may be put away, not so that you could live in it. Be set free and experience the joy of a clean conscience with Almighty God. How do you do that? You call on the name of the Lord. You repent. You believe in faith. You put your trust in him and what he has done for you, knowing that he will save you. He will cleanse you from your sins. He will forgive you, give you eternal life with him and purpose for life and power to live for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we know all too well, all of us in this room know what it's like to be in that downward spiral of disobedience. We know what it's like to continue in sin. We know what it's like to uh, give ourselves over bit by bit, slowly. And yet, Lord, we know that you sent your Son to put away sin, to destroy the works of the devil, to bring an end to ourselves, and to give us eternal life with you. Lord, we come before you asking for your forgiveness. Asking you to fill and direct us. Lord, help us not just be conscious of our sin, but help us also to be conscious of our self-righteousness. Lord, help us to remember the grace of God that has come to us, that none of us are deserving. That we all alike face condemnation apart from Christ. But Lord, now with Christ we have salvation. We have restoration. So Lord, please, for those that are here today that have not yet placed their faith in you and repented of their sins and invited you to be Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that you might convict, their, convict them of their sins, show them their need of a Savior, and show them that you can save and transform, that they might place their faith in you. And for those of us who have lost our first love, that we've turned from you and we've given in to the lies of the devil and we've indulged in all kinds of sin, forgive us. Lord, help us not to stay playing in the mud, but help us to catch that train of salvation and restoration. Lord, use us for your glory. We thank you for what you've done and what you're going to continue to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.